If you got stuck with a capital expense bill in the tens of thousands of dollars that you expected insurance to cover, but they only paid you 10% of it, how would that impact your investments? You may not know it, but you could be insured for only a fraction of the cost to replace key elements of your property in the event something happens and you need to make a claim. In this episode, I talk with Rama Gupta, a trusted insurance advisor with Kapnik Insurance Group. Now, Rama tells us about how investors can sometimes get caught with poor coverage and some of the biggest mistakes you can make when it comes to insurance and give you some key advice on making yourself and your investments more successful. We'll learn all about that after our quick intro. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy. Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm sitting down with Rama Gupta of Kapnik Insurance Group. Now, Rama is a trusted insurance reference for me and my partners, and we've done quite some business together. Really, really excited to have him on to talk insurance today. So Rama, thanks for coming on. Justin, thanks for hosting me. I'm honored and glad to be here. Perfect. So we're excited to have you here. Now tell us a little bit about what's your background and what's your history? How'd you get into the insurance game? Anyone you ask about how they ended up in the insurance game, they're going to tell you they fell into it. Same for me. I have two degrees I don't use, a human biology degree and a master's in public health. So my initial intention when I was in college was to go to med school. So being an average at best applicant, I went through a few years of application cycles and being waitlisted. Then I'm 25, looking at year three of application cycle, and I started to have this internal dialogue. Do I really want to be 33 to 35, half a million dollars in debt just starting a career? Or do I want to take the next eight to 10 years towards building a career? That's assuming I got in for the next year. So I found a company that was willing to invest in me, give me the resources, mentorship, and guidance to make myself useful. No, that's great. I feel like a lot of people in our shoes, whether it's in real estate or insurance, don't go to bed at night when they're kids dreaming of being in real estate or being in insurance, right? But these opportunities find us and then we really find our calling, which is just kind of what the learning process is all about. So We'd love to get you on here because insurance, even for seasoned investors, can be tricky. I mean, things are always changing. Every property's got different story, different requirements, different things that you need. We're working right now actually with you on a property that is a distressed building that has different requirements from other agency debt buildings. So I want to just have you on. Could you walk us through, I guess, starting from the beginning of how most people start to invest, right? They have their primary residence then maybe a home comes up for sale and they think, well, let me buy this one and rent it out. And then it'll be single family home rental. How does insurance for that person differ from primary residence to an investment property? Or is it even different at all? Yeah, Justin, that's a great question and a very relevant question because that's how a lot of investors get started. Their journey as an investor, it really starts out either via a house hack or they're buying a second home and they're like, you know what, let me just keep this primary home in i use it as a rental. So you could really treat the one to four unit space as very similar to the single family home insurance experience. But when you start to get to the five unit plus, the lending pathway changes, thus the insurance requirements typically change too. 
So as you get into bigger deals, you're going to have lenders become more stringent with what they require. So oftentimes it's as simple as contacting and working with who you've been using for your primary residence, homeowner's insurance, and they'll give you a dwelling fire policy. So a lot of times there's gaps that we see often as a result of this, because what you really need is you need to work with a firm, an independent brokerage typically. So they're not captive to a single insurance carrier. They have the ability to go out and shop many different carriers. You really need to partner with a firm that is known for working with investors who understands how to work with lenders, who understands how their direct work product impacts the valuation of your asset, talking in the commercial space. When you're looking at just the one to four unit, the NOI doesn't impact the valuation nearly as much as it does larger real estate deals. You can get away with using who you've been using for years with that relationship. But as you acquire more units and become more serious, you really need to pick a provider, a partner who can grow with you, who is okay with doing the handholding and knows how to work on small deals and large deals. Talking back to that person who maybe like you had mentioned, happens a lot. Well, I'm buying a new home or I'm moving. I'll just keep this one. So does that cover almost everything that they need? Do they keep that same policy in place typically as when they were living there? Or is it a different policy they would change it over? Or how does the renter's, I guess, insurance kind of complement what you would need as the owner or the investor of the property on a single family situation? I'm so glad you asked. Renter's insurance, especially when you're starting out, it's often one of those overlooked things. It should be standard as part of the lease. So they call it tenant legal liability. So basically any damage that the tenant or their guests, make sure their guests are included, basically it'll be covered. So the tenant starts a fire, they cause a water overflow in the upstairs bathroom that seeps down into the whole house and causes $30,000 worth of water damage. You want to make sure you're covered for that. Yes, you could make a claim against your insurance policy, but why take the hit on your loss run? So it should be, you know, it's very affordable. It's a simple risk transfer tool. It covers everything. Also in the lease, you know, you should make note that you're not responsible for their personal contents. So they need to ensure their personal contents. And as the landlord, you want to make sure that the renter's insurance policy lists you as an additional interest. There's a lot of really smart tenants out there, and some will get a policy, move in, and cancel it. Those are the tenants that are most likely to have a claim. So if you're listed as an additional interest, you'll be notified by the insurance company that they canceled the policy. So renter's insurance should be standard operating procedures within your company, your real estate company, how you operate as a requirement. Got it. So the renter's insurance is going to cover the things that the tenant does. So if they mess up the walls or if they, like you say, cause water damage, that's going to be hit on their insurance or their guests. What other things should investors kind of have covered, or is there a bare bones that you would at least recommend for them to get to supplement that renter's insurance? Yeah, absolutely. There's two directions we can take this. So the two markets I like to use are Detroit and Flint. You can buy houses there for $10,000, put 15 into them. And what I'm going to talk about is the houses in normal neighborhoods that's insured for the appropriate value of the replacement costs. So one of the pitfalls we see a lot of times with investors is they forget about making sure the business income, your rental income is included. So you have ongoing expenses. You might have a mortgage or debt service. So this will pay you based on what the actual lease agreement is. Or if you're supposed to get $700 a month, you'll get $700 a month from the insurance carrier to pay for while the house is down and you're not making any money on it. So you'll want to make sure you've got replacement costs. Again, this is assuming that it's in a normal area. You didn't buy the house for $10,000. 
So you want to make sure you've got replacement cost coverage, depending on your area. So in Southeast Michigan, sewer and water backup is a must. We have a really crappy sewage system. So anytime it rains, we see water overflowing on the highways. People have water in their basement. It's causing damage. So you want to make sure you have sewer and water backup coverage because that's excluded typically. An asset, a property that's older than, I don't know, 10 years, you want to make sure you have ordinance and law coverage, especially if you have assets that are 30, 50, 100 years old. When that was built, the building code was one way. And since then, the yeah. building code has changed. <laughs> so the insurance will pay to bring the building back to what it was. But local ordinance says if X percentage of the building is damaged, you need to go through and bring it all up to code. Paraphrasing, but this is a typical scenario we'll see. So the insurance coverage for they sign off on the work wants you to say, bring all the windows up to code. So what's going to pay for that? Ordinance and law coverage will pay for the increased cost of construction. Got it. So for older buildings, you should add that on. And then if laws or minimum requirements change, and that requires a, hey, I have to now put an additional $30,000 into anything, whether it's walls or the base needs to be different or windows, a lot of times change for the requirements for windows sizing and things like that. So that's going to cover those. And that's something that you want to add on, especially in those older properties, it sounds like. We would always recommend it as a just rule of thumb. It's not very expensive and it really would close unforeseen coverage gap. A lot of people might understand the single family space a bit because at least they have some type of experience there. But switching into multifamily, when you get to that five plus properties, you're working a lot more closely with the lender. Even after we engage with you, I don't need to hear from you for quite a few weeks because you're talking with the lender and you guys are going back and forth and then figuring those things out. What requirements are a lot of times you looking at or what should people know if they're shopping multifamily properties? What are some things they're going to need to know generally about the insurance they're going to have to get? You need to know who your lender is. If you're working with agency debt, they're going to require that you get an umbrella. A lot of times that's not something that people factor or they think about. And it doesn't matter what size. If you're using agency debt, they're going to require a minimum of $1 million excess or umbrella. So that could throw off the pro forma. So when you're working with the lender, there's the acquisition price of what you're buying it for. There's the appraisal. And then there's the replacement costs, which is the lender's going to watch you, assuming it's not a local bank or credit union where they just say, hey, we need it insured for this amount. They don't have any other requirements, which is great. It's not necessarily in your best interest if you're not familiar with insurance, but it's great to get it through the lender. So you've got the appraisal says what the lender wants it insured for, and then you've got what the insurance company wants it insured for on a replacement cost basis. So that replacement cost, does that mean, hey, if I buy a 10-unit building and I buy it for a million dollars... The replacement cost, does that mean, hey, if this whole building burns down and I need to rebuild it from scratch, it would cost me, let's say, a million and a half or two million. Is that the cost that you're talking about with replacement cost? So that amount needs to be insured up to like, let's say, two million if you were going to build it from the ground up? Yes, that's what you should have it scheduled for unless it's blanket coverage, which then you can, I'm not saying underinsure it, but if it's blanket coverage between a whole schedule, you can use up to the blanket amount. You could have it at 80% replacement costs insured for that amount assuming there's no co-insurance penalties. Say the building would cost a million dollars to replace. You can't insure that for 400,000, expect them to pay a million to replace it. So would it be 80% of that bill back costs? Depending on the carrier, they'll let you insure it for 80 bucks a square foot replacement costs. But we all know realistically based on construction costs, it's probably closer to 175, $200 a square foot. If you insure it for that, it's going to drive the rate up. 
if the whole building burns down, they're going to pay up to the limit of whatever that building scheduled for. Got it. And so it's just really balancing where do you want your NOI to be versus what coverage makes you feel good at night. And also the location is so big. We look at properties that sometimes are by the Mississippi river. And mm-hmm. if you are one block closer to the river, it jacks your price up. I mean, it's just, they are so specific with their maps or with their flood zones and everything like that. If even one little tiny corner piece is there, it jacks the rate up. As people are shopping for that next investment property, what are some signs they should look for to maybe understand, hey, if it's by maybe the Mississippi River, I can pretty much bank that insurance is going to be more. What are some other things that they should look at that generally will indicate this is going to be more expensive to insure? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, especially in the multifamily investing world, they love to throw around that $300 a unit for insurance pricing. I wish that was consistent and uniform. Yeah. <laughs> my job really easy, but that's simply not true anymore. That was a really good indication three, four years ago, but the market conditions have changed. And if you're coastal, first thing to look at is how's the weather in this area? My near coast. Am I going to be subject to hurricanes? So let's use Texas as an example, because it basically hits all the boxes. So you've got Houston, Corpus Christi. So you've got the Gulf Coast. That's all prone to hurricanes. And Houston, we know that flooding too. Let's go to North Texas. What do they have up there? Hail problems. and (laughs) Basically, Texas sucks for insurance. So while there are areas that might not be prone to extreme weather, the whole state gets penalized for that. And you're going to have higher insurance rates. Looking at Oklahoma City, you're still going to have the hail, tornadoes. Those all impact that. Looking out in California, I had a client asking, so they're, they've got a facility there. They keep inventory in Bell, California. So this is greater Los Angeles area. I presented an earthquake quote and they asked me, do I really need this earthquake coverage? I said, well, that's for you to decide, I provided them with all the information showing, hey, here's a list of all the earthquakes that have happened and been recorded in this area since yeah. the last 30 years. So I equipped them with the information for them to decide. So California, you can't even get insurance in some areas due to the wildfire risk. Yeah, checking FEMA flood maps, that's another thing. So if you're near a body of water, you can actually check the mapping and it'll tell you what their actual risk is. Oddly enough, one that's not weather related is how close is the asset to a fire department. So if you're out in the country and you're 30 miles from a fire department and there's no hydrant remotely close, that's going to be really unfavorable ratings. Yeah. I Um, would never have thought of that either. So fire hydrant close by, that's a good sign for you then. Yes. We do look at Oklahoma and depending on the property, it's worth it, but those are just things that need to be tailored more specifically, right? So is it important for investors to have a local broker there that lives in that area or works in that area, or can a nationwide broker handle those things? I mean, is there data that they have that all insurance agencies have or another broker who has better rates, but they're not quite in your local area? Do you think that's still fine or is it pretty important that the person's there as well? And it goes back to choosing your professional service partners. It goes back to that. So it's kind of a two-pronged question. The answer is yes to both, but depending on the level of sophistication with your insurance provider that you've chosen. So State Farm, that's a captive agent. We've built a relationship with a State Farm agent in Texas to for us to place coverage through. Yes, we get paid less, but we're able to kill, knock it out of the park by using a local captive agent. Having information about these captive agents regionally 
at the end of the day, the goal is to best serve the client and ensure they're getting the best deal, the best coverage. Yes, it's sometimes important to have a local presence, but it's not necessary. Call your broker and say, hey, what are you guys seeing for property rates in this city or this region? Then you can kind of do some napkin math and you can back into what the rate's going to be or what your premium is going to be. They need to at least be knowledgeable about what the rates are there. Got it. For those investors that are out and maybe they're looking at a couple investment properties to either start or grow their portfolio, and they're looking to add that insurance contact to their team, what are some questions they should ask them? And is it important to have one or do you see benefit in having hey, one broker insured one property, another company does another property, or is it, I guess, better to consolidate those? And then what questions should they be asking as they're interviewing people for that position? You can ask other investors for referrals. Like, who do you guys use? and why. You can ask them how many units they place coverage for. If they're a regional broker, so like we could name drop, anyone in Michigan would know these names automatically because they're the biggest names in town. But if I were to go to a couple states south, they might not know any of these names because they don't mean anything because we don't have a market presence there with local companies. Like We might have clients that own something. We're starting to get into Atlanta, but it's because our clients that are located here are starting to buy stuff there. Yeah. But no one's going to know who we are down there. But the philosophy doesn't change. So really ask other investors in your peer group or your network, ask them who they use. Ask the broker, like, do you guys actually have experience working with investors and the lenders? So that's always important to ask. So when you're looking at a deal, if you're working with an independent agent or broker, you should only have one broker looking at a deal. It's okay to go to a local captive agent and also have them do the same. But choose the horse you want to attach your car to because the broker will go out to all these different markets. If you go to another broker and they go out to the same markets, the underwriter is going to be like, okay, so I've received the submission from two different brokers. What's going on here? Is this really a good opportunity? Do I really want to give my best swing at this? It kind of muddies and clouds the market. It's really, you're doing yourself a disservice. Because that's the thing we're lending to with agency debt is it's kind of a good rule of thumb to not approach the agencies with two different contacts. So in the insurance world, why is that, I guess, a hindrance for an underwriter to get the same property twice? They're going to think the client, the insured, mm-hmm. is a shopper. I mean, the underwriter is going to see this and like, all right, am I going to work on this opportunity that I have a 90% chance of closing? Or am I going to work on this opportunity that looks like the insured's a shopper? I might write it this year and they'll jump next year. Got it. When does that engagement happen? So let's say I'm an investor. I'm buying my first property. I know I got to get insurance. I got you, Rama and John. I know our two insurance guys. I'm going to approach you both and say, hey, I'm doing this thing now. When is the time that I make the decision? And how do I make sure that, hey, you guys don't go doing unnecessary work before I've make fully committed to who I want to work with? You can work with someone. They can help you pre-underwrite the deal. Depending on size, they might even be able to pop out a quote pretty quickly. So you can work with somebody to pre-underwrite the deal. When you've got it under contract, that's when you tell them to get to work and going. So that's when you pick somebody to say, all right, let's get this going. Because when it's under contract, you're 60 days out from closing typically. And then with how I've seen closings, they're going to be extended at least another 30 days. So you're basically 90 days out from the actual closing. But as soon as it's under contract, that's when you engage somebody to truly get to work. But use your trusted partner to help you underwrite deals. Because we've done this a lot just to shop vendors and see, hey, can you tell us what you think this quote would come out to or for lenders and for insurance is if the prices are wildly, wildly off. It's not just by some magic that one quote is four or 500 bucks less. 
a month than the others. There's got to be a reason. And I would just make sure to ask those questions and even say like, hey, I got a few quotes that were at 400 a door. Yours is at 280. Why? What's not there that maybe we do want there? Or say, hey, yours came in at 400 a door. I have two others at 280 a door. Why is that? And sometimes they'll say, well, because we've worked in that area and we know that you're a block away from the Mississippi River. If you were one block over, it could be 280, but now it's not. And so that could also give you a good indication of who's the vendor you want to work with, who's the one that really knows what you need to do and where you need to be on that insurance. So that's really good advice to have the pre-underwriting going. And then if it is your choice to work with two or three brokers, you can assign markets. So you can say, all right, you get these markets, you get these, you get these. So that makes sure they don't go to the same markets, theoretically. And you eventually want to get to a point with your insurance provider that they can put on their risk management hat and help you review quotes. And that's why you just want to use one so they can go through and do all that work and compare quotes and then present you the options, give their recommendation. And they've equipped you with all the information. They've laid it all out. Now it's up to you to make the decision. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Rama, really, really sound advice there. Now, one last thing I'd love to ask you because every insurance person I've talked to has something. What's, I guess, a horror story that you have that you could share with us that listeners could potentially learn from? Absolutely. And this is going to really apply to the investors who have started getting into single family homes. And now they might be going through the process of doing a refi or something like that. So I've started working with a lender recently who's doing refis for their clients. And part of their pre-underwriting process is they get a copy of the existing insurance policy. And these are rented homes in reasonably good condition. I'm seeing actual cash value, which means in the event of a claim, appreciation is going to be applied to the claim. So let's say you've got a roof and See, a big storm comes through and messes it up. Say it's a $10,000 roof, you're going to get $1,000 to pay for that. And that's assuming the deductible doesn't chip away too much. So, I mean, that's a big coverage gap and you think you're covered. And another thing I've seen is there's no loss of rents or business income on these as well. So the house burns down, got no business income. So between actual cash value, coverage forms, no rental income, and basic coverage form, that's basically five named perils. So smoke, fire, water, wind, something else is in there. Those are basically the big things that it's going to offer coverage for. You really want special or broad form coverage. It's even worse because the insurance agent had them sign acknowledging that I'm accepting this crap coverage. So the insurance agent's covered. The investor thinks they have sufficient insurance, but they really don't have anything. So really keeping in mind of what's covered, because like even with that roof, that's something that you expect to breathe easier and say, okay, no worries. The insurance is covering that. We've got the storm or whatever it is. Then you come to find out that it's only going to get 10%. Oh, the life's been worn out. So you're only going to get this percent. And that's a huge hit. When it comes to insurance, that little extra you pay per month, we've always seen to be worth it. Get the proper coverage for it. Make sure your business operation can be supported. If it's something, especially if you do it full time, make sure you're covered in all those aspects. So I mean, Rama, thanks so much. That was great having you on. How can listeners get a hold of you if they have insurance questions? Justin, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation. If anyone needs to get a hold of me, my uh, LinkedIn link will be in the bio, or you can text me. Cell phone number is 517-894-5940. So we'll put all that information in the show notes. Listeners, while you're there in the show notes, if you haven't already, download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. And we'll see you on the next episode.